And for the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So go to John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, maybe just raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. It's good to be back. I was planning on preaching this sermon last Sunday, but I got the flu. And uh, my wife tells me that when I get sick generally, but then particularly when I was sick last week, I have two modes, sort of emotional modes. I'm either in denial or I think I'm dying. And so I know many of you were praying for me, but really you probably should have just prayed for my wife. But when, when you're sick and you're kind of, you know, quarantined in a, in a bedroom, you know, you, you sort of get tired of books. And so uh, I got to catch up on a few podcasts. And one of my wife and I, one of our favorite podcasts, it's kind of what got us into podcasting, is this podcast called How I Built This. And basically, it's a, a sort of interview podcast series where Guy Raz interviews successful uh, business people. And basically asks the question, how did they build it, right? How did, for instance, how did the, this man who was making carabiners in his home and climbing equipment, how, how did he go from making those sorts of things to creating a brand called Patagonia, which is, you know, a billion-dollar company? Like, how did something as small as that turn into something gigantic? And, and it's wonderful because you so, sort of learn how to um, kind of re-engineer success, was it skill? Was it just the right dumb luck? How did these people take an idea and then just create a brand out of it? Well, this morning, our text is sort of like how I built this. Only it's not as it relates to a company, but it really is how God began to build his church. How he built this movement. I mean, how did, um, how did a, a movement in a, an obscure place in the world 2,000 years ago, how did that spark us here? Right? Last I checked, there were about 2.3 billion people in the world that suggest or say, state themselves that they are Christians. How did, how did we get to 2.3 billion people saying that they're Christians with this Humble beginning. Like, how, how do you go from that to this? In many ways, we see uh, uh, the birth of a movement here in the Gospel of John. So how did God do it? Was it slick marketing? Social media? A great website? Great programs? How's God going to spark this movement? And I think for us, not just how is God built like the church in a general sense, but as we look at this, I think the really help to us is how does God continue to build his church? Like how do we, the chapel church, how can we kind of re-engineer the things that God did here early in the birth of the church? How can we use those same principles, those same lessons, and re-engineer the building of our church? So the big idea that's behind me, and I apologize, it's long, it's clunky, I failed you, but that's what you got. You got a paragraph this morning. So for you note takers, 
I apologize. I had the flu last week. I'm going to blame it on that. But the big idea is that God builds his church through a message meant to be heard, an experience meant to be seen, and a calling meant to be transformed. And what we're going to do is we're just going to flesh out those, that big idea in three parts. So let me read the text, and you'll sort of see where I'm going here. John chapter 1, verse 35 to the end of the chapter. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you doing, and what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You are called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, we see in verse 35 and verse 43 that this, this sort of narrative takes place over two days. And in verse 35, we have John the Baptist. This is sort of the day after uh, Jesus is baptized. John is sort of with his disciples. He's with a group of them, and he sees Jesus walk by him, and he looks at him, and he again witnesses. He, he declares this, this identity about who Jesus is, and he says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. And it's at this message, this declaration of John the Baptist, that the disciples of John, these two disciples, they turn from following John the Baptist to now following Jesus, like at that message, when, when John declared, behold the lamb, these disciples, they leave John and they attach themselves to Jesus. But, but notice this sort of message, it doesn't just stop with John the Baptist, right? Others begin to start talking and kind of promoting this message. And so you go from John to Andrew. And Andrew goes and he witnesses to Peter, verse 41. Peter says, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And then if you go down to verse 44, 
Philip is called by Jesus himself, but then Philip goes to Nathanael and says, verse 44, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets were wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So in many ways, the message about who Jesus is, it's getting out into the community, isn't it? John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, Andrew the Messiah, Philip the one the Old Testament promised, and these are all sort of different way of describing the same reality. They all said, finally, Christ has arrived. Now, what this Christ is going to do, what he's going to accomplish, that's going to be fleshed out the rest of the Gospel of John. But for now, all we see is that this message is getting out. It can't just stay in the human heart. It's just being birthed out of the lips and voices of all of the people who encounter Jesus. And it's all different types of people. Just notice, Andrew hears this message from a preacher, John the Baptist. Peter hears the message from his brother. Philip hears the message from the source himself, Jesus. And Nathaniel hears the message from a friend. Now, I I think herein lies the power of this movement. It's carried and it's fueled through relationships. I I was uh, talking to a a friend, this was years ago, and he was starting a business. It was like part graphic design, part building websites, and, and he was really good. Like I saw the product. He was really good at building websites and doing graphic design. That wasn't the problem. The problem for him was how do I get the message out? Like, how do I let people know about my business? Well, the king has arrived, hasn't he? The Messiah has arrived. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. The message has arrived. And the only question is, how is that message going to get out? What's the strategy? And here we find out God's marketing strategy. It's you It's me, it's us. We are meant to display and declare and to communicate that the king has arrived. Which is sort of scary. In one sense, it's, I think, terrifying. But but when I read this, there is no hint of obligation, is it? I mean, they're just so enamored or they have so much curiosity. They have so much wonder that this, this message is bubbling out of them. It's not like duty, like, oh yeah, I'm going to get brownie points as I share the gospel. You, you get no hint of that, do you? Or it's no like self-righteousness. Look, look how awesome I am. There's no hint of despair, like, oh, I can't do this at all. They don't even have concern over the results They're just sharing and saying, the one the Old Testament has talked about has arrived. Some of you have friends who you don't tell secrets to because they just can't keep their mouth shut. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't know, if you don't have a friend like that, maybe it's because you're the one. We all have those friends who just can't keep a secret. Well, here, these men, they can't keep the secret. It's just is bubbling out of them. Christianity really is a message-centric religion. I mean, uh, there's lots of religions that are not like that, right? Like, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just so you have a, pure, a level of sort of purity of heart, or if you try hard enough, or you have a, a level of morality. It really doesn't matter what you believe. 
Not Christianity. Christianity is a message about God sending his son into the world to die for sinners, to forgive them, to restore them, transform them into his image, and then bring them together as his people. It is a message-centric religion. And how is that message going to get out? God's marketing strategy is through people, through relationships. That's why we've always kind of sent people to places where the message has not been heard. Because people need to hear in order to believe. Like two or three weeks ago, I was in Seattle at a preaching conference and I met this man um, up in Seattle. And he told me a bit about his story over lunch. He was from Arkansas and he was pastoring for 27 years in Arkansas in a thriving church. His family was there. He was from there. That's Arkansas is all he had known. But then he, he started reading about Seattle and about how few churches were in downtown Seattle. And he looked out and he said in his little county, his part in Arkansas, and I've never been to Arkansas. I don't really even know where he's from. But he said that there was, there was like 30 churches within like a two-mile radius of this kind of small county in Arkansas. And he said it was just haunting him that there were so few Christians in Seattle so few churches, so few messengers heralding the gospel that he left his church, he left his grown children, his grandkids, the only state he'd ever lived in, he left it in order to move to Seattle to plant a church in 2016. And so I, I kind of jokingly, I said, <laughs> how's it going? And he said, over the last five years, it's felt like Seattle keeps kicking him in the teeth. That was his metaphor to sort of describe what it's like to plant a church in Seattle. But but then he paused for a second over lunch and sort of kind of with a, a, a tear in his eye, he said, but we are committed to Seattle and we love Seattle and we've seen God do some amazing things in Seattle and God's name is going to be preached here in Seattle. I mean, frankly, there are probably lots of reasons to leave the state of Washington. I mean, it's almost June and look at the weather out here. Like the weather is oppressive. Let's just call a spade a spade. Maybe the truest thing I've said all day. There there might be many reasons to leave Washington. Oh, but here in our text, we find the greatest reason to stay. The mission, the message getting out because God builds his church through people, through relationships, through declaring the message, through, through friendships, through family, through churches. That's how God has always done it. And I, and I just add, just by way of application, I think there's a, a sort of principle here that we see, which is, as it relates to kind of talking about and declaring the gospel message, start with personal friendships and relationships. That's what we see here, right? Andrew going to his friend, or Philip going to his friend, Nathaniel. Andrew going to his brother, Peter. Start with friends. Start with neighbors. Start with existing relationships. That's how God is building his church. Through people. Declaring the good news of the gospel. But then second, not only is God building his church through a message that's meant to be heard, but second, through an experience meant to be seen. 
So Andrew and the other disciple, they follow Jesus. Look there at verse 38. And then Jesus turns to him and says, why are you stalking me, right? Like, why are you following me? I I just love how Jesus cuts just straight to the point. And they respond to Jesus saying, why are you following me? Jesus, or they ask a question. They say, where are you staying? Now that's weird, right? Jesus says, why are you, why are you following me? And they say, hey, um, are you staying at the Galilean Hilton or at the Motel 6? Like that's how they respond. It's sort of a weird question to Jesus's question. And I think some have wondered, are the, the, these men trying to intentionally be coy? Like that they don't want to like kind of creep Jesus out. So they're like, oh, I just wanted to know where you're staying. I, I don't think so. They, they want to know where Jesus is staying because they're asking the question about, can we be in relationship with you? Can we stay with you? That's what they want to know. They want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. And the only way they know if they can answer that question is in the context of relationship. They want to come and see if Jesus is the real deal. That's their desire, to to be in a relationship with Jesus and to experience life with him. And look at this amazing response. Jesus says, verse 39, Jesus responds and says, come and you will see. They had questions, they had concerns, they most assuredly had doubts. And Jesus says, take your curiosities, take your doubts, your concerns, and come and spend time with me. Come and see if I am who, you, who the rumors are that I am. Well, The wonderful thing also is this isn't like an exclusive invitation to a relationship. Look down at verse 44. Philip is called by Jesus, and then Philip goes and meets his friend Nathaniel and says, I've, I found the, the one the Old Testament is pointing to. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And don't you love Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come from, from Nazareth? Right? We all have those, those blunt friends. Nathaniel's that blunt friend, right? Who just kind of tells it as it is. He, he was from another Galilean town and there's probably a rivalry and he's like, come on. There's nothing good that comes from Nazareth. Nathaniel might have also known his Bible and been like, if, if this Jesus who you say is the one the Old Testament is pointing to, isn't he supposed to be from Bethlehem, not Nazareth? Which is true. So Nathaniel has his questions, his concerns. And Philip then responds to Nathaniel's sort of brutal honesty and he plagiarizes Jesus. He says, come and see. And I think just, I think this is brilliant for lots of different reasons. One, it's always great to, you know, just plagiarize Jesus. That's always a safe thing to do. But, but, but Nathaniel asks a legitimate question, a hard question, a complicated question. And Philip does not know the answer, my guess is. And so all he says is, I don't know. Huh? That's a great question. Why don't we just go and hang out with Jesus and have him unravel that question? I mean, we, we all have that tendency when we're meeting with someone and they ask that hard question to, to want to argue with them, to defend, to, to, to pull out our sort of uh, apologetics. And here's Philip who just goes, ah, oh, great question. I don't know. Why don't we just spend some time with Jesus? You'll get the answers. Why don't you experience firsthand? Why don't you come, see, spend time with Jesus, and I think your, ans- your questions are going to be answered. 
And so he says, come, come and see. It's once again, Philip and Nathaniel together saying, hey, in community, in the context of this community and this relationship, let's together go spend time with Jesus and really investigate if Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. We see twice in our text that, that our text says that, that they are called to seek. And then twice we see, and I don't think it's an accident, that they found. There's this intentional play that they're seeking the Messiah, and then it twice says they found the Messiah. Right? Which very much is a John sort of theology, that those who seek, find. Those who are seeking Jesus, find Jesus. But whether it's with Philip or Nathaniel or Andrew and Peter, the context matters. They're doing this in community. I mean, yes, in one sense that that we're all called individually to pursue Christ, to pursue God individually, but, but that individual pursuit isn't merely individualistic. It must always be within the context of community. We seek Christ together, as we see here. Uh, ne- ne- next Sunday, Lord willing, we are going to send off prayerfully some high school graduates. And it, many of them, I think there's six or seven of them, they're going all over America um, for the most part. And uh, he- here's my little encouragement. Uh, more important than finding the best coffee shop wherever you're going. More important than finding the library or even your classrooms. And I'm intentionally being hyperbolic here, so sorry, parents. But more important than finding the best place to study is finding a church or a campus ministry to embed yourself in for the next four or how many years. There's this tendency, and I worked for ten, almost 10 years in a college town, and there's this tendency to, to go off to college or, or to go off to a new town and think, oh, I'm solid in my relationship with Christ. I can just do this alone. Or maybe I'll just put it off, and maybe my sophomore, junior, or senior year, I'll find a church or a campus ministry where I can build friends with. But what, however solid you might have been going into college, if you don't find a campus ministry or a church to live life in, to, to experience and to seek Jesus together, you will inevitably flounder. Our Christianity, our, our walk with Christ is personal, but it's never just personal. It's always in the context of community, and that's what we see here. Nathaniel asks a hard question. Well, what happens in college when the professor asks that hard question or your roommate asks this hard question and the only people in your life are non-Christians, the answer that they're going to give to those philosophical questions or those experiential questions, we all know how that's going to go. So so whether you go to a Christian college or a secular college, in one sense, it doesn't matter. Just find a community, find a church, find a campus ministry and make friends and seek Christ in the context of community together. And as you seek Christ, one of the promises is that you'll find Christ and much more. And I think for the, for the rest of us who are not going off, well, I, I think there's an application 
just to the importance of community. So, so join a small group. Join a discipleship group. Grab someone and, and have coffee. Read the Bible. Read, read a good Christian book. Our relationship with Christ is personal, but it's never meant to be merely personal. We need each other when we have those hard questions, when we have those concerns, when we have those thoughts or those doubts that creep in. We need brothers and sisters to say, I don't know the answer to that, but why don't we come to Jesus together? Why don't we investigate those hard questions together and seek Christ in the context of community? That's how God's building his church. He's, he's building it through the message coming out, but then secondarily, he's, he, he's building it through people together in community coming and seeking and experiencing Christ firsthand. That's why it's always appropriate to say, hey, why don't you join a Bible study? Maybe they're not even a Christian. Because why don't you just experience the Bible firsthand? Or why don't you just come to church? That, those are always wonderful invitations to give to your friends and families because it's a great context to think through and process your doubts or your concerns. And that's what we see here. But then finally, there's a third movement in our text. Not, not only is God building his church through the message that's meant to be heard, the gospel, through an experience, an experience of Christ in community meant to be seen. But then third, there's a calling meant to be transformed. Jesus is transforming these men here in this text. So, so go there to verse 41. Andrew finds his brother. And then he brings Peter to Jesus. And Jesus sees him and says, verse 42, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So, so, so Peter comes to Jesus and Jesus sees him. And the first thing he does is he renames him. He gives him a nickname. I love nicknames. I, I rarely call my wife by her actual name. I love nicknames, but, but it's weird if you give a nickname to a stranger. Right? Nicknames is in the context of kind of intimate friendship, relationships. And instantly, Jesus just looks at Peter and gives him a nickname. Now, there's theological significance here because when you think about it, when you, when you start all the way back in Genesis, God has this sort of, uh, God often renames people in the Bible, doesn't he? And when, when you see that in the Bible, when you see God renaming someone, it's not just that God wants to give him a nickname that's cool. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new identity with a new purpose. Abraham, Sarah, renamed. Why? Because they, together they're going to, birth a people. Or think of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. I mean, we, we, we could go on. And so we get to Peter, and Peter is going to be called, well, Simon is going to now be renamed Peter. And Peter means rock. And, and we all know, have our little stereotypes of Peter, right? Peter, who just kind of is, is just really quick to speak. Peter, who's going to deny Jesus three times. Peter, who, who isn't the most courageous person in the entire world, that, that's Peter, who doesn't really think. He just kind of jumps, ready, fire, aim. There's Peter. And Jesus, at seeing him, says, no, you, you are a reed of a man, Simon, but I'm going to build you into a rock. You have small faith, but I'm going to 
builds you up and you are going to have rock-like faith. Jesus is transforming Peter, isn't he? Giving him a new identity, saying, I am going to build you into a man who is going to preach one of the great sermons of the early church. And it's not just Peter who's being transformed. Nathaniel also. Nathaniel has this amazing experience. Look down at verse 47. So, so Nathaniel, that says like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then uh, Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus. And verse 47, Jesus responds and says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom uh, th- there is no deceit. So, so in the Old Testament, there is kind of the, the prototypical deceitful one, that this sort of scoundrel, and it's Jacob. Jacob who swindled his, his older brother Esau out of his birthright. But here you have Nathaniel who's sort of the, the opposite. He just kind of says it is like it is. So he is not like Jacob. He is a truth teller. There is no guile, no deceit. He just speaks his mind. Well, Nathaniel's pretty confused, right? He looks at Jesus and goes, how do you know me? How do you know that about my personality? Like, how do you know my Myers-Briggs? Like, how could you know that? It's a good question. And Jesus says this, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what in the world is that? Now, it can mean many things. This could just be an image for the Messianic age, and Jesus is just talking symbolically. I don't think so. I think this only makes sense with how Nathaniel is going to respond to Jesus' claim if we just take this literally true. That Nathaniel had some spiritual, mystical experience one day while he was sitting under a fig tree that only he and God know about. He hasn't told a soul. But Jesus knows. And when Jesus says, I know about that experience you had with God. I saw you under the fig tree. I know. At that, Nathaniel responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel, in that sense, has kind of of brushed up against omniscience. Only God could know about that experience. But Jesus did know. And so he makes this amazing confession of faith. And yet Jesus kind of pushes back on Nathaniel, doesn't he? he? He says, right, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you now believe? And then he says, but you are going to see greater things than these. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus basically says, you think it's amazing that I knew about your little fig tree, under the fig tree experience? You think that's amazing? Jesus looks at Nathaniel and goes, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing. And to make his point, Jesus reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. Remember, there's this sort of, uh, Nathaniel is this sort of Jacob-like foil. And he goes back and he reaches 2,000 years to the story of Jacob to Genesis chapter 28. So Jacob has just swindled his brother and he's like, uh-uh, my older brother, he's stronger, he's bigger, he's gonna come after me, he's scared and so he knows I gotta get out of town and so he's about to leave because he's got the blessing and he goes, he's about to leave to his uncle's house and he's traveling in the wilderness, exhausted, fearful, 
lonely. Where is God? My life is over. Chapter 28, verse 12. Or verse 11. He, he finally reaches this certain place. It says, and he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I mean, he's so tired, he used a boulder as a pillow. So there's Jacob. Tired, exhausted, lonely. But God comes to him, verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a ladder resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So there alone in the wilderness, God gives Jacob a vision. A vision of a ladder stretching from earth to heaven and angels coming back and forth on that ladder or that staircase. And then Jacob announces, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so he called the place Bethel, meaning house of God. So when Jesus is talking to Nathaniel back in our text in the Gospel of John, why does Jesus reach all the way back to Genesis chapter 28? Well, simply this. What was sort of nameless to Jacob, this sort of vision that Jacob had, well, it has a sort of fulfillment. What was unnamed to Jacob in Genesis 28 is now named to Nathanael. You see, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the stair to heaven. So so if you want to experience God, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to see God, if you want to be just uh, hear the, just the, the flapping of angels' wings, if you want to see this amazing thing, if you want to see where heaven and earth meet, it meets in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is telling Nathaniel. Oh, you think it's amazing that I know about your little mystical experience? You're looking at God, Jesus says. Oh, you think that's amazing? Oh, well, Jacob had this little vision, but the fulfillment of that vision is me. I am the place where heaven and earth meet. I am the way in which you can get to heaven. I am the way you can experience God. I am the mediator between heaven and earth. Jesus is the latter. He's the way to experience God. He's the way to have a relationship with God. The fulfillment of Jacob's vision has arrived. Oh, Nathaniel thought he saw something amazing, but he ain't seen nothing yet. Nathaniel's outlook is being transformed. I mean, Jacob's whole identity is being transformed, and Nathaniel's whole outlook is being transformed. And only Jesus can do this. This is how God builds his church. It's that simple. It's built on a message going out, the gospel message, as we experience and come to Jesus and are then remade and transformed by Jesus. That is how God built his church. Not by awesome programs, slick social media, and all these sorts of things. No, he does it 
through this simple message getting out, through an experience, a brush as we, with Jesus as we come to him, and then Jesus supernaturally transforms us. That's how God builds his church. It might not be cool and sexy, the latest and greatest, but it is the tried and true manner in which God is building his church. So if we're going to re-engineer this and think through, well, what does this mean for us? How do we build the chapel church? Well, it means we got to get the message out. We got to keep preaching the message, guarding, protecting the gospel message. Two, it means that we need to ourselves experience and come to Jesus consistently and continually and experience and invite other people into a relationship with Jesus, even if they have their doubts. To, to be okay with that and to sit with our friends and families in their doubts and say, I think Jesus is big enough to bring your burdens to him. And then watch as God transforms us and transforms other by his grace, by his power, all through a brush with him. That's the plan. It's not like a New Year's sermon, but that's basically the plan about how God continues to build his church. Let's pray. God, uh, we, we, um, we, we are humbled in, in light of the, the immense grace and grandeur of the power of your word and the power of your supernatural grace, Lord. We, we pray, Lord, that, that you would help us to know you and experience a depth of your love and grace and mercy in a new way in this season. And Lord, we do pray that you would bring friends into our lives that we might love and care for and, and be maybe a, a, a fill-up to. And just say, I don't have all the answers to all, every question, but I do know this. Why don't we just come, come to Jesus? So Lord, we just pray that as we continue to sing, as we continue to live out in this world, we, we pray that we would daily, weekly, every hour, every minute, we would continually come to you, Jesus, and experience your life-changing transformation that is only brought through him. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.